Good morning, Exchange Church. I think pretty much know everyone in here, but my name is Ben, for those of you I haven't met before. And uh, it's my pleasure today to fill in for Todd, who he and his family are on holiday for the weekend. I'm not sure where they went, but I'm sure they're somewhere nice. And so, yeah, it's my pleasure to get to be here this morning. Let's open up in our time in the Word in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we give you glory and praise. We thank you that, as we just sang, our sins are forgiven in the death of Christ, and we now live. We thank you that we have the opportunity each Sunday to come and worship, to sing your praises, to pray, and to look at your word, to be changed and become more like your son, Jesus. So now as we come into your word, we pray that our hearts are settled and our minds are fixed on you. And that the words that I say may paint a little picture of the glory to be found in your scriptures. And ultimately that some something might strike all of us uh, through your spirit and draw us a little closer into your presence. We pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. So this morning, we're going to look at this wonderful little story buried in a book that doesn't get a lot of attention in our scriptures. It's in the Old Testament. It happens to be the very last book in the Hebrew Old Testament, but somewhere about the middle in ours. It's our Old Testament. And that's the book of Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles sort of is a trace of the history of the kingdom of Judah from King David onward. But in order for us to really appreciate the story that we're going to look at in Second Chronicles, we need to sort of set the stage a little bit. We haven't been in this book at all, so we need to kind of get a little bit of background. So most of you would have heard of Moses. He appears in the book of Exodus. And after he led all of the Israelite people out of captivity in Egypt, and then after 40 years of wandering around in the desert for rebellion as a consequence for their rebellion, Israel finally set up their own place in the land of Israel, set up their own nation under the kingship and rule of God. However, the Israelites continued to rebel and rebel and rebel against God and his rule and chase after all the sinful and wicked lifestyles of the nations that they crossed path with and also swords quite frequently. And Israel wanted to be just like everyone else around them. And ultimately, this led to Israel's wholesale abandonment of God as her ruler in preference of a flesh and blood king that could shake a sword and jab it into another flesh and blood king. And so thus an infamy started the monarchy of Israel. This, however, did not catch God by surprise. You see, God had always planned on giving Israel a king. Maybe not the king that Israel thought it wanted, and certainly not the man that they thought they wanted, but a genuine king nonetheless. And after Israel's first king, Saul, the one the people thought they wanted and needed proved to be an utter deadbeat and flop, God chose a man who had a heart like his and knew what it meant to live by God's chief command found in Deuteronomy 6 verse 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. 
And it was to be this king, King David, that God gave one of his most extravagant and important promises. We find this promise in 2 Samuel 7.16. And God says, Your house, David, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. At one level, God promises David that his biological descendants will occupy the throne of Israel forever. Astounding. Absolutely floor. But it wasn't long before rebellious Israel would begin to test out whether God was any good at keeping his promises. David's son Solomon was a wise and brilliant man who had all the right stuff, humanly speaking, to keep Israel together. But David's grandson and Solomon's successor, Rehoboam, was an inept and foolish leader who lost over half his kingdom in one go permanently to a rebellion. Which isn't a really great start to an eternal dynasty, if you ask my opinion. However, despite Rehoboam's pathetic rule and loss of territory, God faithfully kept David's lineage enthroned over the now much smaller kingdom of Judah, while the rebel kingdom of Israel got caught up in all sorts of wicked tomfoolery and idolatry. Over the next many, many, many iterations of kings, the rebel kingdom of Israel slid deeper and deeper into wickedness and rebellion against God, while the Davidic kingdom danced between periods of faithfulness and obedience to God and periods of backsliding and disobedience. For Israel... It hit rock bottom with King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. In 1 Kings 16, verses 30 to 33, it says that Ahab did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. He did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And Jezebel, now she's a real piece of work, to a God-fearing Israelite at the time, Jezebel came from a foreign land up north called Phoenicia, which was indwelt and ruled by murderous demons and wicked god imposters. And Jezebel brought all that showbag goodness with her when she relocated to Israel's capital. And her husband, Ahab, opened that showbag with glee, with the abandon of the car ride home from the festival. And in 1 Kings 21-25, it says, There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord, like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited, and in brackets, to wickedness. With the throne of the kingdom of Israel now lost to a pack of Phoenician demons and utterly opposed to the rule of God, what was Judah to do? Despite its own foibles, it still claimed to obey God. It still had the temple, it still had God's priesthood, and it still had the divinely appointed throne of King David. But cue the evil genius laugh. Ha, 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 ha. With the arrival of Ahab and Jezebel's daughter, Princess Athaliah, or Athaliah. Such an innocent-sounding name, but yet she was cut from that same wicked cloth as her mother Jezebel. In a marriage of political expediency, Athaliah, much to the delight of all the opponents of the one true God, both physical and spiritual in the world, finds herself queen over God's kingdom of Judah. But like her mother, like daughter, Athaliah brings the same rotten showbag right into the heart of God's worship in Jerusalem. 
And similar to Ahab, her husband, the king of Judah, dabbles with all of its putrid contents. This is definitely not God's idea of a good time for his people. And so God removes this faithful king through a rather painful bowel cancer, which in Chronicles is a way of saying he was a bad, bad man. Now the wicked queen Athaliah becomes the wicked queen mother Athaliah, which at that time was a very respectable role, minus the wickedness part, of course. However, the new king, Ahaziah, listening to the advice of his evil mother, Athaliah, is no better than his father and gets himself killed while teaming up with the demon cheer squad up in Israel at the exact moment that God decides to bring judgment down on them for their idolatry. And with all of this background and context, we finally come to our passage today. And as we come to this passage, we'll see that no matter how dire the situation, nor how evil the days look, the worshiping community will always find God faithfully preserving his plans and his promises. So, without further ado, let's open up to Second Chronicles, chapter 22, and we'll be reading from verses 9 and 10. You also should have it on the screen if you want to look there. And the house of Ahaziah had no one able to rule the kingdom. Now, when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal family of the house of Judah. We'll stop there for the moment. So we pick up the story with the king of Judah, Ahaziah, having just recently died and leaving a vacuum of suitable candidates for the kingship. Verse 9. Since Ahaziah was only 23 when he died, all of his children were pre-adolescents to babies. And all of Ahaziah's brothers were already killed by marauders from from Arabia many years earlier. So what was Judah to do? How was the Davidic lineage going to survive this really dark patch? Never fear, evil queen mother Athaliah to the rescue. Only Athaliah was not a descendant of David. She was not a God-fearer. And she wasn't eligible by any stretch of the imagination under God's law to take up the throne of David. But since when did evil, power-hungry types ever care about pesky little inconveniences like God's promise to David or God's requirements for kingship found in the book of Deuteronomy? In fact, all the spiritual and fleshly powers opposed to God's rule couldn't have been more thrilled. The demonic fox was loose in the righteous hen house. And it didn't take long for Athaliah to consolidate her power and to seek to annul all of God's promises and to make God out to look to be a liar. She immediately sets out to exterminate in good old Doctor Who Dalek fashion, exterminate, exterminate, all of her male grandchildren, verse 10. The potential future kings and heirs of God's promises to David. In Hebrew, which I don't speak, but I can look up in a dictionary, we get an interesting extra little bonus in this passage as well. In verse 10, where the ESV on the screen translates royal family, the Hebrew words are actually royal seed. And the word seed in the Old Testament is a really important and powerful theological word. It's a word that's used in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when God curses the serpent just after the garden. 
of Eden. And he promises that there will be continued enmity between the seed or offspring of the serpent and the seed or offspring of the woman. And then alludes to one specific seed that would eventually crush the head of the serpent. Those of us living in the New Testament times can give a guess as to who that might be. By the time we get to Chronicles, the period of the Chronicles are set in, it has become clear that the promised seed of the woman would also come through the seed of David. We find that out in 2 Samuel verses 7 and 12. So Athaliah, then, as the current iteration of the seed of the serpent, attempts to bruise the heel of the woman's seed, just as Genesis chapter 3 foretells, and end the line of David. The New Testament uses a different word, or another word that we could apply to Athaliah. And this is where her story begins to connect with ours right here today. And the word that the New Testament uses is little a antichrist. In John chapter 2, verse 18, the Apostle John says that it is the last hour, this period of time that we're in right now. And as you have heard that little a antichrist is coming, so now many antichrists have come. John goes on to state that anyone who opposes God, and more specifically in the New Testament opposes Jesus, is an antichrist. Today the church faces many, many, many of her own athalias, antichrists who are the spiritual descendants of the serpent of the garden. The church is under growing attacks from various cultural ideologies that are popular today. And much like Athalia, during the reigns of her husband and her son, the spirit of Antichrist is pushing and prodding the church to sign up with this various social and political agendas. The spirit of Antichrist is weaseling into the church, like Athalia, into the monarchy of Judah, and to bring it down from within. How many pastors and churches around the world have forsaken Christ, even if only subtly, in order to achieve street cred from their preferred cultural subgroup. For example, in the 1930s, the German church listened to the spirit of Antichrist and absorbed all of the Nazi fascist ideology into its theology and turned a blind eye at all of the atrocities and horrors of the Hitler regime. Again, in the 1980s, the American church Listen to the subtle whispers of Antichrist and deeply aligned itself with the Republican Party to the point where it was practically a doctrine of faith to be a Republican and a Christian while I was growing up there. And now we see the fruit of this deep alignment with the almost raging blind support among many Christians in the United States for the very current, very unchristian, yet Republican president. I don't say all this as you know political parties, but just to say that the alignment between those ideologies are not necessarily biblical. And this is true for all of those who are bowing to the spirit of Antichrist, whether the progressive left or the conservative right, the sexual revolutionists or the economic and cultural protectionists. And the spirit of Antichrist is right here in our own hometown of Shepperton as well. If you're like me, 
you work with or play sport with or are friends with at least a few people who are actively working to undermine the last vestiges of our Christian heritage in this country within the broad culture. Or, for more evidence, pick up a copy of the Shep News on any old particular day, and it will be filled with articles and opinions that are pushing this way or that way, but anywhere but towards Christ. At this moment, we haven't arrived at an Athalia-style bloodbath. But is it coming? Well, almost certainly, at least in some form. It isn't likely to get to the point of a Dalek's extermination fantasy here in Shepparton. But we who trust Christ may soon find that our following Christ becomes costly, both socially and financially. You see, it's the pattern of the Antichrist. Weasel in and then bring the boom. It's the pattern of those who oppose Christ and seek to thwart God's plans. But don't lose hope fall into fear or get depressed. See, we haven't finished our story here yet. And God is always working to preserve his plans and his promises. Let's return to our story and we'll read from verse 11 through chapter 23, verse 3. But Jehoshabeth, the daughter of the king, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were about to be put to death And she put him and the nurse in a bedroom. Then Jehoshabeth, the daughter of King Jehoram, and wife of Jehodiah the priest, because she was a sister of Ahaziah, hid him from Athaliah, so that she did not put him to death. And he remained with them six years, hidden in the house of God, while Athaliah reigned over the land. But in the seventh year of Jehodah took courage and entered into a covenant with the commanders of hundreds, Azariah the son of Jehoram, Ishmael the son of Jehohanan, Azariah the son of Obed, Messiah the son of Adiah, and Elishaphet the son of Zikri. And they went about through Judah and gathered the Levites from all the cities of Judah and the heads of fathers' houses of Israel, and they came to Jerusalem. And all the assembly made a covenant with the king in the house of God. And Jehodiah said to them, Behold, the king's son, let him reign as the Lord spoke concerning the sons of David. As I mentioned a minute ago, that God is always working to preserve his plans and his promises. Well, his first move is through a gutsy woman of faith named Jehoshabeth, who somehow ferrets away one of the doomed princes, Joash in verse 11, and hides him away in the temple for six years, verse 12. Now, I'm not sure how Athalia so badly miscounted her own grandkids just before she murdered them, but she seems to be completely unaware that a total number minus one means one is missing. And her bad sums will come back to bite her later. God's second move comes through a priest named Jehodiah, the husband of this gutsy woman we just met. In verse 1 of chapter 23, the Bible says that he took courage. Another faithful person throwing his lot in with God and his promises. God has promised that he will preserve the seed of David, and Jehodiah believed God and trusted that promise. And so he took courage and stuck his nightgown, which was quite literally going to get chopped off if he got caught, and plotted a coup. 
do you call it a coup if you're removing an usurper and putting the rightful king back in? Don't know. But then our priest gathers a group of people together, representing the whole worshiping community at that time, and reveals the true and rightful heir to the throne of David and declares in verse 3, Behold, here is the king's son. Let him reign. As the Lord spoke concerning the sons of David. Now, I said earlier that today is not a time to lose hope, to fall into fear, or to get depressed. And here's why. Isn't it just like God to quietly and sort of behind the scenes like put all the right pieces together to counter the works of Antichrist, the seed of the serpent? People like Athalia do not catch God unawares. He's not surprised and he does not get all flustered by them. He's already ready for them when they show up. Here in our passage, God arranges for the sister of the dead king, and presumably from a different mother than Athalia, in verse 22 and 11, verse 20, chapter 22, 11, to marry a righteous, God-fearing priest, 22:11 again, who takes serious the instruction of the ways of the Lord, which we find out about in a parallel passage in 2 Kings, and to then place that same gutsy woman into the palace at just the right time to pull off one of the most important heists in history, verse 11. And the priest's husband, who remained faithful to God even when all the rest of the priests weren't, who just so happens to be pretty gutsy himself, and manages to pull off one of the most important coups in history. Of course, after sweating it out for six years with a contraband kinglet toddling around. But neither of these two people were particularly special or relevant to history. They were both just doing their day-to-day jobs by faith, and acted by faith when action required and they were in the face of a dire situation. See, this is God's way of working, and we can trust him with our own situations are looking dire. As we just discussed, the days are looking more and more troublesome for Christians and are quite likely to get more and more challenging. But we can take courage too, just like our heroine and our hero in this story. We can trust that no matter how evil the day or how dire the situation looks, God will always be preserving his plans and his promises. As true worshipers, we just have to wait and to watch, and when action is required, act. So when the time comes, and your company requires that you sign on on a dotted line, that you affirm something that would compromise your Christian faith, or you face termination of employment, take courage. For God is working in the background to fill his every plan and every promise. Or how about when the curriculum at your school changes and your child is required to be exposed to ideas and values and concepts that are inappropriate for their age and conflict with God's word. Yet your refusal to submit to that curriculum change jeopardizes your children's ability to progress in school or attend school activities or play sport or whatever. Have courage. God is there and he's working, even if it isn't apparent at that exact time, even if it takes six or more years. Or how about the time when it comes, when your faith and hope in Jesus means that you will be eating alone in a crowded lunchroom? Have courage and hope. God promises that you are never alone when you're in Christ, and he is faithful to the end to his promises. And you never know whether the actions you take in these situations are ones like them, 
might be part of something bigger that God is doing, something that God is orchestrating that's bigger than ourselves. And as we'll see, there's still good more good still more good news in our passage. Let's pick up the story in chapter 23, verse 4, and we'll read through 21. This is the thing that you shall do. Of you priests and Levites who come off duty to the, on the Sabbath, one-third shall be gatekeepers, and one-third shall be at the king's house, and one-third at the gate of the foundation. And all the people shall be in the courts of the house of the Lord. Let no one enter the house of the Lord except the priests and ministering Levites. They may enter, for they are holy, but all the people shall keep the charge of the Lord. The Levites shall surround the king, each with his weapons in his hand, and whoever enters the house shall be put to death. But be with the king when he comes in and when he goes out. The Levites in all Judah did according to all that Jehodi the priest commanded, and they each brought his men who were to go off duty on the Sabbath with those who were to come on duty on the Sabbath. For Jehoda the priest did not dismiss the divisions. And Jehoda the priest gave to the captains the spears and the large and small shields that had been King David's, which were in the house of God. And he set all the people as a guard for the king, every man with his weapon in his hand, from the south side of the house to the north side of the house, around the altar and the house. Then they brought out the king's son and put the crown on him and gave the testimony. And they proclaimed him king, and Jehoda and his sons anointed him, and they said, Long live the king! When Athaliah heard the noise of the people running and praising the king, she went into the house of the Lord to the people. And when she looked, there was the king standing by his pillar at the entrance, and the captains and the trumpeters beside the king, all the people in the land rejoicing and blowing instruments, leading in the celebration. And Athaliah tore her clothes and cried, Treason! Treason! Then Jehoda the priest brought out the captains who were over the army, saying to them, Bring her out between the ranks, and anyone who follows her is to be put to death with the sword. For the priest said, Do not put her to death in the house of the Lord. So they laid hands on her, and she went into the entrance of the horse gate of the king's house, and they put her to death there. And Jehoda made a covenant between himself and all the people and the king that they should be the Lord's people. Then all the people went to the house of Baal and tore it down. Its altars and its images they broke in pieces, and they killed Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars. And Jehoda posted watchmen for the house of the Lord under the direction of the Levitical priests and the Levites, whom David had organized to be in charge of the house of the Lord, to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, as it is written in the law of Moses, with rejoicing and with singing according to the order of David. He stationed the gatekeepers at the gates of the house of the Lord so that no one should enter who was in any way unclean. And he took the captains, the nobles, the governors of the people, and all the people of the land, and they brought the king down from the house of the Lord, marching through the upper gate to the king's house. And they set the king on the royal throne. So all the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was quiet after Athaliah had been put to death with the sword. The last thing that I'd like to draw out of our story today is this. And here's the good news that I promised a moment ago. That God works particularly through the faithfulness of the worshiping community. Priest Jehodiah and his gutsy wife Jehoshabeth were part of a genuine worshiping community. And it was from this community that God's chosen king was restored to his rightful throne. 
In verses 1 and 2, our hero priest gathered together the faithful community and assembled them together as a congregation in the temple and before the Lord, verse 5. When they were organized, they revealed the king to the world in the midst of that worshiping community, verse 13. That was throwing a big praise and worship festival. And see, this is how God intends for his people to face the evil days that we all live in, generation after generation. We are individuals who have unique roles to play, like our hero priest and his gutsy wife, but it is always in the context of a faithful worshiping community. For us here in Shepperton, that means our community right here in this room, along with our brothers and sisters that are worshiping around town today, that this community is beyond essential as we face this growing darkness around us. We cannot expect to stand up to the Athalias, the Antichrists of our day, alone, at least for not, not for very long. We need each other. As John, in 1 John 3.10 says, in, in between discussing the Antichrist, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. It is our love for one another that marks us out as children of God and not children of the serpent, the devil. So for us here at Exchange, how are we going with loving one another? Are we forming a robust worshiping community that will weather the coming storm? Are we bearing with each other's burdens? And not just the ups and downs of normal daily living, which is really important, but are we also bearing up with each other's shortcomings, each other's sins, personality flaws, ticks, etc. Are we seeking to nurture each other's souls and spur each other on to deeper worship and deeper, deeper righteousness? Are we creating a safe place within our community to share our hearts, our struggles, our sins, our joys? Or are we gossiping other people's stories? breaking faith with each other, and destroying that safe intimacy of relationship? Are we truly worshiping Christ? Are we growing as a community to see Christ as more valuable than anything else? Our finances, our reputation, our career, our pride? I ask these questions for us to think about, to take stock, to reflect on, and to seek the Lord in prayer with any shortcomings. This isn't meant to be a specific rebuke about anything, but more like an annual tune-up of our cars. You know, our cars over the year get a little bit dirty under the hood, need a good spruce up in the filters and the fluids to keep them running well. Otherwise, they end up like our Corolla. And our church does not want to end up like our little Corolla, trust me. So as we look at the story of the usurping wicked queen Athalia and the faithful Jehoshabeth and Jehoda. We see that no matter how dire the situation or how evil the days, the worshiping community will always see God faithfully preserving his plans and his promises. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are promise-keeping God. We thank you that in the midst of the sin in our world, that you are always there, 
working in the background to fulfill your purposes and your plans and your promises. We thank you that we can trust you in all things. We thank you that in the midst of pain and suffering, persecution, that we know you are right there with us, walking through it. You proved that through your son Jesus when he did just that very thing. Thank you for bearing us up. Thank you for giving us each other so we can bear each other up and point to you and worship you with our whole souls, heart, soul, and mind. We give you our time together. We worship you. And we pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. We got communion up next. I don't. Thanks, Ben. Okay, now we come to another story that also seemed um, that the enemy had won. So I'm just going to go to Matthew. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him, for he said, I am the son of God. And in the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him, they also heaped insults on him. But then something happens. The heart of one of the rebels crucified next to him changes. And he sees the truth. And in Luke it goes on. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Just minutes earlier, it says that both these criminals reviled Jesus. But then suddenly this man understood. And he spells it out for the other criminal. He says, we've done wrong and we deserve death as our punishment. 
Jesus has done nothing wrong. We need to fear God and know that Jesus is the one who saves. And then this man, who has not done one single good deed, is promised eternal life with Jesus in paradise. In that short couple of, that little exchange, that's you know, the whole gospel message there, it's pretty amazing. Now this is our story too. What grace we've been shown and what a gift we've been given. Okay, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that we can't do anything ourselves to win our way into heaven. But we can only know that we sinned against you and that you graciously saved us despite our rebellion. And thank you, Lord, that we are invited to drink and eat in remembrance of you and your amazing sacrifice for us. Please join with me. This is where Todd's supposed to jump up and say, <laughs> um, have a great week. Um, join us for some morning tea and um, yeah, bless you.